0: Hi, you are listening to Celestial Vibes Podcast, presented by Ashwin from India. Okay, hi all, this is the episode, episode 12 of Celestial Vibes Podcast and uh, Lars has again joined me today, uh, basically to talk about the aspect doctrine of Hellenistic tradition. So, Lars practices around 2 or 3 Uh, forms of astrology and I thought uh, I'd invite Lars to do this and I'm just trying to put my foot in learning Hellenistic uh, tradition of astrology so welcome back Lars it's uh, always a pleasure having you
1: thanks for having me it's good to be back and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this it's a really fun and interesting discussion especially for those of us who uh, really like um, you know intellectualisms as I put it <laughs> okay
0: uh, I, I've been fascinated by Hellenistic uh, astrological tradition due to various reasons but uh, I've not been able to concentrate or not concentrate but I've not been uh, having a lot of time to actually spend to do the Hellenistic stuff but I've been uh, reading a reading some texts about Hellenistic astrology and uh, it's it's very interesting and i've tried implementing the sect factor into uh, mm. my basic analysis and uh, it seems to be really good so uh, i thought okay. i thought it's good to explore the aspect doctrine of hellenistic Great. tradition yeah so and uh, more more often than not it's always believed that uh, hellenistic and indian uh, tradition of astrology can go together and they're really good uh, forms of uh, like good two traditions which can be put together in our practice so I thought yeah. I should really explore and try to connect both Vedic aspects and Hellenistic aspects
1: great yeah that is my experience with it too um, and so I'll start off by saying that first of all the Yavanajataka which is the oldest text we have um, in the Indian tradition of horoscopy specifically right excluding the vedic literature because there is astrology in the vedas but it's different um, so yavanajataka is really the oldest horoscopy text we have from india and the the text basically roughly translates to the astrology of the greeks okay but hellenistic astrology itself isn't necessarily of greek origin okay because the hellenistic world didn't necessarily have its center of knowledge in greece it had its center of knowledge in alexandria egypt okay egyptians are not greeks though i'm sure there was an intermixing of greek and egyptian people just like when alexander you know conquered a lot of parts of asia he came into india and there's probably a lot of macedonian there was intermixing and blah 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 so you know no culture is a pure culture um and you know race is an illusion so Anyway, moving on. Uh, so Yavanajataka mentions several key Hellenistic concepts, uh, which is really cool. And one of those being sect. And then we even find sect later on in Parashara. It's I think slightly different, but it's there uh, in one of the slokas. I forget which one. Um, and so these two traditions are really, they're really close siblings. Really, really close. There's so many similarities between them um they both have you know their various types of dashas and so on and um you even have interesting things like the upagrahas of um of uh well i, I know they're in parashara they're mentioned in jamini but i don't know how old the upagrahas are but if you look at the upagrahas which are the shadow planets uh that technique is Strangely similar to the seven hermetic lots, which are a Hellenistic technique where you're basically getting a mathematical point By taking various distances of planets and the ascendant and adding it all together And you get these seven points that are like the seven major planets so those are just a couple of the things and That are very similar and since we're going to be talking about the aspect doctrine today, uh I do want to, at some point in the discussion, talk about what my friend uh, uh, Rok and I have discovered, or think we've discovered, about how those aspects relate to the Avinajataka and Indian astrology, and and it's really uh, well. I'll get to it later. Anyway, I um, my but my friend and I we we sort of stumbled upon something pretty interesting that that uh, that I'll talk about later. So. Okay, so the basic premise of the aspect doctrine of Hellenistic astrology is extremely mathematical and geometric, which is what makes it very simple. So it starts like this you have the conjunction, which is basically two planets in the same sign, you know, and typically they're very close to each other in degree, but any planets in the same sign, even if they're one degrees and 29 degrees of that sign are considered conjunct. And so a conjunction is, is a joining together. It's a union. It's a singularity. So the conjunction is not considered an aspect because if you are sitting right next to someone or you're, or they're sitting on your lap or vice versa or whatever you're, you know, having sex or something like that, or you're embracing. Okay. Then you're, you're conjunct, right? You're not looking at one another. There's no, there's no, the the relationship is as much of a singularity as it can possibly be. Obviously it's not literally a singularity, but that's why the conjunction is not considered an aspect. It's just considered a state of being. The aspects themselves are the, are the, are the larger, are angles, they're various angles. So they're the larger geometric divisions that occur in, um, in astrology around the Zodiac. And so Anything can be an aspect, anything can be an aspect, you know, technically even our conjunction, if it's more than, you know, a minute or a degree is technically getting into some kind of angular relationship. And of course, if you, if you keep going down small and small enough and dividing and dividing, you know, nothing is ever really uh, mathematically going to be exactly conjunct. I mean, and these are just symbolical representations of the planet's orbits because the planets are, far away enough from one another that they're never literally conjunct. They're never literally right next to each other, but astrology is symbolic. So we have the conjunction and then, um, this is a podcast. So it'll be, you know, people won't be able to see what I'm doing, but I'll do it anyway. Basically you've got the conjunction. Okay. So that's the, that's the first level. And then if we go 60 degrees on either side, that's our first aspect the sextals, right? So we've got two sextals. 60 degrees on either side. Then we've got two squares, 90 degrees on either side, either side, sorry. Then we've got two trines, 120 degrees on either side, right, from that conjunction. This is all from that conjunction, okay? Then we have the opposition, which is 180 degrees across. And this has has a house uh, symbology to it as well, which I'll get into in a moment. But for right now, we'll just stick to the geometric idea. And these these are seven aspects, okay? They are only four types of aspects, right? We've only got sextal, square, trine, and opposition. So that's four. But we have them on either side, aside from the opposition, of course. So we get seven aspects in total. And so in the old books sometimes you'll see the authors talking about the seven aspects and that's what they're talking about. And that's very interesting because in occultism, which includes stuff like the Vedas and so on, occultism is just a study of the hidden, the hidden nature of reality, which isn't really hidden at all. It's actually right in front of our face, which is funny, but whatever we call, we call it occultism or esoteric, um, Science or something like that esoteric teaching. There's something called the seven rays and The seven rays are in the Vedas the seven rays of Surya And the set the seven is a very important number in uh, like every major religious tradition. You know, you have the seven days of creation in Genesis you have um, Like seven animals that uh, Noah brings onto the ark seven of each type of animal you have and you have seven in like everything I mean, you know, I'm drawing a blank at the moment, but if you, if you go and actually look for seven in all these different religions, you'll find it all over the place. It's a very important number. And, of course, we have seven major grahas in astrology, right? We have traditional what?
0: Traditional planets. Seven traditional planets.
1: Traditional planets, right? We have the five-starry planets, and then we have the sun and the moon, which are the two lights. So this is the seven, the septenary, the seven rays. And the seven rays are basically just uh, forces. They're just Seven key forces that make up the various um, all things in the universe and then they're also related to the seven planes of consciousness which are called seven Lokas in the Vedas and the I think in the Upanishadic literature as well, so You've got you've got again. You've just got this theme of seven. Everything's made up of seven and then uh, Rahu and Ketu being the eighth and ninth grahas are That gets into something else um, which probably won't have time to discuss but for all intents and purposes the the universe and everything in it is exists in seven planes of consciousness it you know that's the that's the key to it Um, and so we've got the seven planets and then each of those planets is casting seven rays seven aspects according to the Hellenistic tradition with the conjunction or their location being synonymous with the eighth sphere which is in the neoplatonic uh, hermetic kind of tradition the eighth sphere is the sphere of the fixed stars it's the sphere right beyond saturn and that sphere is basically considered by some to be beyond time as we understand it because the idea is the fixed stars uh they rise and set East to west, as we see them on Earth, and while the planets are moving west to east around the zodiacal belt. So they move the fixed, the eighth sphere moves in one direction, but always has this permanence to it, this seeming permanence. It's not literal, but it's the seeming permanence that the stars and the shapes they're in never change. So it's this fixed time kind of sphere or this sphere of no time. And so the eighth dimension is basically what some people might call. The Christ consciousness so we've got the Christ consciousness and then we've got these seven aspects these seven rays issuing forth which makes up 49 which is symbolic of manifested existence on a certain level okay so this is just some fun esoteric crap that I like to talk about because I just love seeing the geometric harmony of it but as a good friend of mine says all this and $1.50 won't get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, okay? So it's really it's really not too important. It's really just, it's just for fun, okay? Um, now, within, within this doctrine, too, we also have the ancient theory of optics. And in the ancient theory of optics, it's not that rays of light reflect off of things in the world into your eyes and then you see them. It's the opposite, that your eyes are shooting out these rays that's the ancient theory of optics and so you know theoretically let's just say it's seven rays why not right it's just seven rays and the idea is pretty profound because you can only see things that you have some sort of inharmonic energetic resonance with so where you where your line of sight falls that's what you can see and so this explains why The second twelfth sixth and eighth houses in Hellenistic astrology are considered dark so if we take the conjunction let's just let's just take Aries okay let's say our planet is in Aries and we're going from Aries planets at 15 Aries so it's going to aspect by sextal right it's going to aspect 15 Gemini 15 Aquarius by square it will aspect 15 Cancer and 15 Capricorn by trine, 15 Leo 15 Sagittarius and by opposition 15 Libra. It will not aspect, right. The four, uh, the two, the two signs on either side of it, Pisces and Taurus or the sixth from itself Virgo or the eighth from itself Scorpio. Um, and the reason, the reason being is not because 30 degrees, which would be the signs right next to it, and 150 degrees, the 6th and 8th signs from it, are somehow bad or evil or, or wrong or anything like that. But it's this notion that as human beings, especially, we have blind spots, right? If I am looking straight ahead, I've got these seven rays, okay? I've got these sextals, I've got these squares, I've got these trines, and I've got straight ahead. But right next to me, right, the signs right next to me if I'm Aries, Pisces, and Taurus, I can't see those unless I turn my head. Okay, so that's kind of the analogy. So the, the semi sextal, as it came to be called, 30 degrees, the, these are dark places, places that um, the aspects, the planets don't aspect, they don't see. The 150 is, um, is a similar kind of thing because the 150 is the two signs on either side of the opposition. Okay, and the opposition is the most direct, most powerful aspect, right? Aside from the conjunction, because the conjunction is not an aspect. So basically what you're seeing is that the sixth and eighth house are mirrored, are mirroring the second and twelfth blind spots. And that's true in life too. We don't don't necessarily, there's kind of an area like right in front of us that on either side that we're going to miss slightly for whatever reason, you know, especially because most of us don't pay attention anyway, most of the time. Okay. So these are, these are the dark places. Okay. And then this is, this is where the house thing comes in that I mentioned earlier, right? The Hellenistic aspect doctrine overlaps with the houses. So in Hellenistic astrology, the second, 12th, sixth and eighth houses are considered dark houses. They're considered houses that have some difficulties attached to them because they're places we don't see. And, you know, difficulty is maybe a little too negative a word. I, I think they're just they're just areas where there's not light. They're just areas where we don't typically look. And so out of that tends to arise challenges because where we don't have awareness, that's where um, all kinds of things can collect that are going to make trouble for us in life and so on. But they're not primarily evil or negative or anything like that. None of this is evil or negative or anything like that. Um, so uh, do you have any questions about that so far?
0: Okay. To start with, I was I was just watching the movie Alexander on the television, which, okay. is, uh, which is a very funny coincidence. And we are talking about, hellenistic astrology so the, right. the the other thing is uh, aspects i thought uh, i know the sextile square and uh, trine opposition thing but i thought hellenistic tradition would have had some other specific aspects like what vedic uh, tradition has like uh, jupiter uh, aspecting the fifth seventh and ninth house and so right uh, okay um. so, so which I'll means, talk a
1: little bit about that there. There's there's something similar, but it's not quite the same
0: okay, so uh, I uh, The thing is the entire Western astrology has found its uh, basement from the Hellenistic tradition From terms, Hellenistic. Yeah, so in in the terms of aspects in the terms of everything but in terms of aspects as well, which is the uh, like square trine. Yeah. And conjunction tale, sorry. Right. conjunction is not considered to be an aspect, but still, uh, I think in well, We modern- treat it
1: like one, we treat it yeah, like yeah,
0: one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in modern days, uh, people tend to treat it like an aspect itself. Yeah. So the degree of conjunction, which is like some, uh, there is a lot of uh, confusions, not confusions, but still so many ideas with regard to the degree of conjunctions in various traditions. And uh, sure. uh, I think the way uh, it is being interpreted in Hellenistic tradition makes sense even though I use the uh, 8 degree factor uh, a lot but still I don't rule out the actual energy that two planets in a particular sign uh, can get influenced in like two planets in a particular sign so like Jupiter and Venus in Libra uh, even though uh, they are far away from each other like uh, if Venus is at one degree or uh, Jupiter is at 25 degrees uh, right even though they are not very 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 close in terms of uh, degrees uh, they share the same sign and uh, the energies uh, the energy is pretty much present everywhere in that particular uh, sign so that, right that, that is you cannot rule that out that is one thing that uh, uh,
1: no one can actually deny well they'll have the same ruler too right they'll have the same ruler yeah they'll- yeah Exactly. Even on that level, they have to be in it together on, you know. (laughs) Yes. So, and uh, about the two, six, eight, twelve
0: is fine, but the second one was really interesting, the second house thing, which, which, and it makes perfect sense. So, uh, there there was a video which I saw where Sam Reynolds, Samuel Reynolds explained, uh, was talking to Nadia about the geometrical, Alignment of six, eight, and twelve houses, and why they are considered to be dark. So I think Mm. you you explained something. uh, It was pretty much uh, in line with what he said. So I think geometrically. So uh, I think it is quite mathematical and geometrical in terms of aspects. Yeah. And uh, that was pretty cool. And yeah, please go on. So so which is the perfect point to like uh, like continue from here like. Uh, would you like to take each aspects, or do you have something? Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. We'll we'll talk. I want to talk about like why the aspects do what they do, and then kind of like how to use them in practice without getting too overwhelmed um, and stuff like that. Um, I I wanted to mention quickly as well, though, that even though Western astrology derives its base from Hellenistic astrology, Hellenistic astrology is not Western. And a lot of people call it Western. And I have a serious problem with this because um, because where I come from in the United States, there's just a ton of racism. And so I'm not accusing anybody of being racist by doing this, but I just feel like it's a little misleading or ignorant to say that Hellenistic astrologers from 2000 plus years ago are, are Westerners as we understand it today. They're not. You know, they're Egyptians, they're Lebanese, they're Persian, they're they're ethnicities like that. And so they are probably a lot darker skinned than most Europeans and most European Americans. And I think that's something that's really easy to forget. It's really easy um, because of the way the United States has its history and all that stuff. And so, yeah, it's kind of a tangent, but I just, I just feel like it's an important thing to say. And... You know the distinction of east and west is a is a false dichotomy anyway i don't i don't really believe in this notion of like eastern and western i i think it's um it's just false and so i think that as we discuss this is like there's just astrology you know there's not all these different forms of astrology that are separate and apart from each other you know they're different and there's there's something to celebrate in them them being different or unique but they have more in common than um, they do not have in common and that's my experience with studying divination in general so yeah so that that's just a just a quick tangent a quick aside um, and uh, yeah did you did you want to say anything about that or you want me to just move on
0: no uh, I think I also consider astrology to be universal which is why I'm trying to uh, bring the bring Western astrology as a value addition to my uh, astrological knowledge. So I'm not really confined to Western astrology, as most of uh, the Vedic astro- like uh, confined to Vedic astrology. Like most of the Vedic astrologers are. Uh, yeah. I, I really want to explore the other traditions of astrology, but I don't want to call myself uh, this kind of astrologer or something. I it's just astrology so just
1: astrology yeah and and on on a side note too uh you know the tropical sidereal zodiac thing that has nothing to do with the astrology you practice it 's not like you can only do tropical Hellenistic or you can only do sidereal jotish, you know you can try either one of them, and I know people who do Hellenistic with sidereal and people who do jotish with tropical so that really has nothing to do with it either, but okay. Anyway, cool. So moving on. Um, so basically, uh, yeah, we've got these different types of aspects and so they must all do something different, right? They must all have a different character to them. Um, the conjunction is obviously going to be very subjective. If we get into s- sort of a psychological approach, the conjunction just is what it is. It, it, it deals more with, what happens with a conjunction happens more subjectively, more personally, more contained, whereas the opposition is usually something coming from outside because it' also ha- carries the notion of the seventh house,
0: yeah.
1: right the seventh house is about other people, partnerships, how we relate to people in the world and places we 're going to, and so on so you know this is why this explain things like this too explain um certain aspects of like say Digbala, where um you don't want to have jupiter and mercury in the seventh house necessarily because even if they're in good dignity right then that means wisdom and intelligence are coming from other people whereas if you have them in the first house it's coming from within which is ultimately where it should be coming from yeah um but it's not a bad or good distinction it's just different so so the opposition fundamentally has this notion of it's complimentary in a sense, you know, it's, it's very powerful. It's coming from outside and it's something that you're going to interface with. It's something that's going to reflect you. Um, and then I'm sorry, I'm using, I'm using, I'm using the psychological metaphor kind of broadly here. It's not that I'm not saying that every time you see an opposition, it has to do with like a relationship and that the person whose chart you're reading is, you know, But it's just kind of a metaphor here, you know, that's kind of the vibe of the opposition. But the thing is, is that Forget about like how these aspects are different and just realize that if you understand the basic rules of Hellenistic astrology, which include what's called reception when a planet is in say Aries and the Lord of that sign Mars is aspecting that planet It's receiving it so that that aspect is more powerful And that's a a whole other subject. So, you know, maybe we can do another show on that. But the point is, if you understand the basic rules, forget first of all, forget about what the aspects mean. There's just a relationship, right? Mars is Mars. It doesn't matter how Mars is aspecting. Jupiter is Jupiter. It doesn't matter how he's aspecting. So any aspect from Mars, even a nice trine or sextal, is still going to be Martian. It's still going to be intense, activating, dynamic. It might you know, create situations that are violent or volatile or angry or produce a lot of change and momentum. Jupiter, even if he's aspecting by an opposition or square, which are the more tense aspects, he's still going to be, you know, big hearted and jovial, and he's going to increase things and give abundance and so on. So you can actually just use this aspect doctrine, similar to how you would do it in traditional Jyotish, right, and just say there's an aspect. And it doesn't matter what the aspect is. So there's this relationship, there's this influence, okay? So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, but we'll sort of come back around to this uh, after I now explain how the different aspects are different. So basically, the square and opposition are considered to be dynamic, to create resistance, and to create intensity. So there's a relationship between the two grahas, in square opposition that's really intense and dynamic. There's a lot of energy happening, you know? It's giving rise to something, right? It's activity. That's the key word, it's not bad, it's not malefic, it's not dangerous, okay? The square is considered to be of the nature of Mars for the simple reason that if we count four signs from the signs owned by the sun and moon, which is Leo and Cancer, if we count four signs from each of those, Mars rules those signs. Mars rules Aries, which is four from Cancer, and Mars rules Scorpio, which is four from Leo. Very simple. Saturn rules the two signs exactly opposite, the sun and moon, Capricorn and Aquarius. So Saturn is similar to the opposition. Saturn is more external, it's a diurnal planet, if we deal with sect. Mars is more internal, it's a nocturnal planet. So Saturn's aspect just like Saturn, feels more like somebody just put a big ton of bricks on your back and you now have to carry it. So that also tells us about the opposition. It feels more fixed. It feels more faded. It feels like it's coming from outside of ourselves. The square feels more like it's coming from inside of ourselves, typically speaking, because Mars is much more personal. It's how we respond to situations, especially situations that disturb or peace of mind, right? Fight or flight. So the square is a more internalized kind of tension. Okay, it's less, it feels less, it can feel less fixed or rigid, so to speak. Um, Just, and these are just very general things, okay? Uh, But once you understand all these things, it kind of, it just helps you to interpret in the chart. Uh, By no means do I think about half of this stuff when I'm interpreting because otherwise I it would just become, yeah, it would just become ludicrous. You know, I would never, I would never reach a conclusion about what two planets are doing. Um, so any malefics in square or opposition are considered to be more malefic. And I don't really like the word malefic. I like the word, um, I like the word cruel, which is, um, which is similar, which is a translation of one of the Jyotish terms, uh, um, I think it's krura or something like that. Krura. Yeah, krura and somya. So somya is gentle and krura is cruel, roughly speaking. And so there's more cruelty, right? Because if, if you are, and, and metaphorically speaking, again, metaphorically speaking, if you are resisting something intense happening, right, if there's resistance, oftentimes the damage is much greater. So this is why in drunk driving accidents, the drunk usually ends up with no major uh, medical problems and the other person who they crashed into suffers horribly because the drunk person they don't have the awareness to resist anything <laughs> right so any malefic Saturn Mars but also I would say the Sun the waning moon you know and even mercury if mercury's become malefic so just that general kind of you know that general idea um, the benet the what are called the gentle aspects, uh what I'm gonna call the gentle aspects, sextal and trine, right? Well those are um the trine is of the nature of Jupiter, okay, because he rules the two signs trine to um Leo and Cancer. He rules Sagittarius and he rules Pisces. Okay, so trine is like Jupiter. It's expansive, it's very it comes very easily, it's very you know, it just sit back and relax, and something happens. Uh, Venus, what? Pre-flowing. Pre-flowing, yeah. Venus rules the sextal because again, it rules the two signs: sextal to Cancer and Leo, which are going to be Libra to Leo and Taurus to um, Cancer. So there's a very, you know, a very logical kind of thing going on. The sextal is considered a weaker trine. It's considered to be, again, very gentle. But because Venus is a more internal planet, nocturnal insect. It's coming from within. So Venus and the sextile get you good things because you desire them and you go towards them. The trine and Jupiter get you what they get you because you have faith and you let a greater power take care of it, so to speak. That's kind of the metaphor. And then geometrically, right, um, bisecting the circle by 180 gives you two. Duality. Duality uh, is is supposed to be about flow and interchange, you know, wax on, wax off, um, tamas into rajas, rajas into tamas, and so on. Oftentimes, though, duality becomes uh, tension, you know. And same with the square, right? Ninety degrees. When you have a perfect square of ninety degrees, that's one of the most unstable shapes geometrically. And that's why in in architecture you have you have corners. That have that where you have another beam across to make a triangle because the equilateral triangle, which is the trine aspect, hence the name, which is three, is the most stable of shapes geometrically. Uh, I'm not sure if it's more stable than the arch or not, but it's very very stable, right? And the energy just naturally sort of flows; it's free flowing. It just you know, um, and then you know, the sextal is is a a, hum, a harmonic of the trine it's, you know, you're going to, you're going to make, you're going to make the smaller triangles within that equilateral triangle, so to speak. And basically, um, or you've got two triangles intersecting each other rather. That's what it is. Uh, the star of David, as it's called the Jewish star, you know, so you, you've got this, um, you know, you've got some esoteric kind of crap there too, if you want to <laughs> go down that road. But the, the point is, is those aspects are gentle, right? Because of the geometry and the, the more, The square and opposition are more dynamic, more um, intense because of the geometry. So basically you have this interchange of tension and release and so on. And when the, sorry, this is just a ton. I know this is a ton of information. Um, When the benefics are in aspects of trine and sextal, right, they can do greater, greater Quote-unquote good they can do more in accordance with their own nature of being gentle because those aspects are gentle and And same with the waxing moon and mercury if it's benefic and even you know, whatever the Sun at times too now Here's the kicker. This is and this is what's really interesting if a simple way to interpret the paradox of a Malefic in say a trine aspect or a benefic in say a square aspect is that basically It's not that anything major changes, but the benefics are able to do, they're able to be less gentle or less benefic in a tense aspect because it's not like their nature. There's resistance. You know, it's like, it's like if somebody's trying to give you a gift, but you're like, "Ah, I don't know if I want it. I don't know if I want it. Uh, Okay, I'll take it. Versus the person that's just like, oh, you're giving me a gift? Okay, I'll take it. You know, the malefics uh, in gentle aspect, it's like, again, it's like that drunk driving kind of metaphor or like having a sharp scalpel if you're doing surgery, right? You, you want a sharp scalpel because you want the cut to be clean. If you, have a, if you had a dirty, uh, rusty scalpel that wasn't straight, right, the cut would be really messed up. The skin would be resisting the knife and so on. And so, um, so the malefics do less cruel, so to sort of speak, things when they're in those kind of harmonious aspects, typically. Okay? But the kicker is that there's no good or bad in astrology because there's no fundamentally good or bad in the universe. Um, and so basically a triner is sextal between two planets that are in really not great condition and in difficult houses and so on can actually be more destructive than if it was square opposition, because that's the situation, that's the drug addict. That's the person who's like, I don't wanna deal with anything, so I'm just gonna shoot up on heroin, right? Versus the person of, let's say, a tense aspect between those same two difficultly placed planets, that's the person who maybe is very self-destructive or runs out and gets into bar fights, you know? (laughs) so just different um and and same with uh, some you know same with the the opposite too is like sometimes like i said the square or opposition is preferable to the trine sex in a way because it creates that resistance and that resistance feeds our momentum to be more than what we are to be more than what we are to contribute something greater to the world and so on to realize our fullest potentials if a person has no squares or oppositions. um, I've seen charts like that. And, and a lot of times that can be very difficult because there's just too much either subjectivity or things come too easy for the person. So there's not enough of a challenge. You know, they don't have that aware awareness that comes from um, those challenges that the squares and oppositions give rise to that feed uh, that can feed the better side of our nature. So nothing is black and white with the aspects. Nothing is black and white with the astrology as a whole. And um, I want—I do want to talk about elements and modality, but I want to <laughs> take a break for a moment and see if you have any questions about any of that.
0: No, uh, the only thing that uh, I had is, do you think people tend to stereotype square as a hard aspect or a, a difficult aspect when compared to trying or sextile. So uh, as you say square seems to be a constructive aspect but uh, I, I come across some uh, Places where people tend to see square as a very bad or a hard aspect
1: Yeah, I my experience with the astrological community at large is that most people have a good bad dichotomy In their minds when they approach astrology and divination and so a lot of times yeah the square and even the opposition get typecast as like these kind of villainous characters (laughs) in the play of the chart you know like oh it's a square that's bad on the other hand any really good astrologer who knows what they're doing especially when they've done a lot of horary or prajna um they will understand that oh okay this is a square that is still going to lead to um what what the client is hoping for in their question you know and that a lot of that has to do with reception if there's reception if it's a square and there's reception it's still challenging okay it still takes work and effort but it has a greater chance of working out without um something like upaya or divine intervention you know
0: Okay. In, uh, if you see in planetary cycle, when you take uh, the cycle of two planets, uh, when a planet is, so let's say Saturn-Jupiter cycle, and when Jupiter is placed in uh, about 120 degrees from Saturn, it is considered to be the peak point of the happenings with regard to uh, the Saturn-Jupiter relationship in that particular okay. cycle in that particular cycle so uh, I think directly square cannot be a bad aspect or a hard aspect hard aspect but I think it can be a constructive thing which might yeah uh, like which might motivate us or force us to do something which exactly. we, might, we might not necessarily uh, do it uh, as a human so it is a psychological right. thing. So you need a exactly. drive you need a drive and probably square is the drive
1: the square is probably what
0: square is probably the drive
1: The drive. Yeah. yeah. hmm Yeah, it is. It's a it's a it's a, a Square creates a turning point It's one of the four spokes of the wheel of yeah. the 360 right just like the cycle of the year Which has the two equinoxes and solstices which are 90 degrees apart, right? So it's a turning point you have to make a decision and decision means basically cutting away something so naturally because of the way we are as human beings, there's typically a certain level of resistance or sorrow in how we approach these things. Cause we, a lot of us don't like change, you know, there's kind of, a lot of us are very tamasic in a sense. We, so.
0: Uh, Squire also demands to leave something behind and we are too yeah. far attached to things so that we don't like leaving things behind. That that would probably
1: be one of the reasons. So, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, this other aspect of of the aspect doctrine, no pun intended there, (laughs) is that uh, that of the elements and the zodiacal modalities. Uh, And the elements is something that emerged later in the tradition. Originally, it was the four winds in Hellenistic tradition. And as far as we know, the signs weren't assigned elements. But the elements, of course, are so... Incredibly logical and beautiful that they fit perfectly in astrology and they kind of make everything make more sense. So um, So, you know, it's, it's pretty simple stuff, right? The uh, the opposition is always going to be between two positive elements Right fire and air earth and water or oh, sorry two positive or two negative elements Two L. El- sorry two elements of the same polarity Okay Earth and water being the negative polarity, not negative as in like bad or evil, just negative as in the real definition of the word. And then the positive polarity of air and fire. So those are always joined by opposition. Hence, there's a lot of potential for complementariness rather than enmity in the oppositions. And in fact, in Light on Relationship, which is by Hart, Defoe, and Robert Svoboda, which deals with. Um, relationship sinistry and Jyotish, they talk about that actually having two, if two people like have their suns or their moons or their venuses or their ascendants opposite one another, it's actually a very good sign for the sinistry because it, it, they can complement one another, right? Fire is stimulated by air because it needs oxygen. Meanwhile, the fire gives warmth and depth to the air itself, which, okay. you know, it, which promotes life and so on. Uh water and earth, right? Uh water is going to feed earth so that it so that it grows with vegetation and earth is going to give water some direction, some consistency in where it flows and how it's shaped and so on. So there's this complementariness to the opposition that is a lot a lot of times overlooked. Although in jyotish it's not because it's just it's a full aspect which I, I've always liked about the jyotish perspective on it um the the um sorry did you want to say something about that
0: no um i just wanted to fall back to one thing like uh, in in vedic astrology we generally take the sign-based aspects so how how do you see the difference between a difference in interpreting the sign-based and the the degree-based aspects so in Western astrology i i I always see that astrologers take aspects when it is Astrologists consider uh, two planets to be in square only when they are exactly one twenty mm-hmm. degrees apart. So when 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 a planet when the cycle is approaching one one twenty degrees, so they say it is approaching, and if, if it crosses, they say it's parting away uh, from the like aspect or something like that. So
1: yeah,
0: how do you differentiate from interpret interpretation point of view? Um. I mean, I so, think this is, this is very close to what we were talking about. The conjun- yeah. conjunction. So when, when, okay. plans, so, uh, I think there is a little bit of, uh, like, uh, it's almost like we are arguing against ourselves. <laughs> So, uh,
1: yeah, well, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Let me just finish. Let me just finish this element. Thing okay, sure,
0: sure, so sure, sure, yeah.
1: Um, and then I'll get to that. Cause that's a really good question. Uh, so anyway, uh, the oppositions are, ele- you know, the complementary elements, and they're always the same modality: cardinal, 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 cardinal. Okay, or mutable, mutable, or um, uh, you know, fixed, fixed. Right. So they're always between the same modality. So there's that aspect too. Um, the squares are always between, also the same modality, but now it's not the same element, and it's not a, and it's not a complementary element, right? So you have a square between fire and water and earth and fire, right? Kind of more disparate relationships. So that's where some of the tension again arises. Um, Then you have the trines, which are the most harmonious because they are always between signs of the same element, right? They're always between fire signs. They're always between air signs and so on. So you have a reinforcement of that general theme of that element. Sextals brings us back to the, the same kind of thing as the opposition, Okay. With the difference that a sextal can be between a cardinal and a mutable or a mutable and a fixed or a fixed and a cardinal. Right. So, but we're still going to have two elements that are complementary. You can only have a sextal between fire and air and you can only have a sextal between earth and water. And in the trine, going back to the trine again, you have the, uh, you can have a trine between mutable and fixed between cardinal and fixed or between, um, Am I doing this right? Yeah, cardinal and fixed, mutable and fixed, or mutable and, and cardinal. And any time a fixed sign is involved with a sextal or a trine, the aspect is more powerful because it has that fixity. Okay? All right. So, um, and if there's time, I'll, I'll get into some of those other subtleties, like the fact that a square between two fixed signs is less... Is considered to be less, less challenging, because it's almost like it helps to uproot the stubborn nature of those fixed signs, and then also because of something called Antitia, which if again, if we have time, I'll go over later. But there's like so much that we could cover and want to cover here, and um, you know, it just depends on how much time we want to go. So
0: I think we can also have
1: a part two on this because it's
0: not something that we. Uh, we have to confine ourselves to one episode. Or yeah, so. maybe yeah. we
1: can do Antitia in another episode, yeah. but I'd recommend looking up Antitia because that is a, a really important part of the aspect doctrine of Hellenistic astrology and it it changes some things around, but let's uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. And so let me get back to your question about degree-based versus sign-based aspects. So yeah. first of all, they are all sign-based aspects. So that means whole sign, right? So any planet in Sagittarius is trying to any planet in Leo or Aries, right? Doesn't matter what the degree is. the The difference because the difference is is that a degree-based aspect, when it's very close, right, is more powerful. It's just a little bit more powerful, okay? And it's also it can also change some things around um, in terms of how how the aspects are working out so like if um let's say let's say the let's see yeah let's say the sun is at 15 aries and the moon is at 13 leo okay the moon is moving towards a perfect aspect with the sun that's called an applying aspect yeah if the moon were at say 15 um and like one minute (laughs) Or let's just say 16 of Leo with the Sun at 15 of Aries the moon is moving away from that perfect aspect So that's separating applying aspects are always a little bit more powerful because that's there's an engagement happening Separating are always a little bit weaker and in prashna and horary. This takes on um, A different meaning of basically is it about to happen future or has it already happened? Past right? So there's that distinction Another another way that the degree based thing really comes into play is like, okay so especially for those who practice Jyotish, this is very important because this is where the the this is where the doctrines can kind of start to overlap. And my chart is a good example. So I use something for my chart. Mars in Jyotish and traditionally even in Hellenistic making a sextile aspect is really not that powerful. It's like probably the weakest aspect that Mars can make. But if Mars makes a perfect degree-based sextal to a planet and there's reception, all of a sudden that is actually a very powerful aspect that's happening, even though normally we would think, no, that's that's really nothing. Case in point, in my chart, Mars, which is the third Lord, makes a very close, like exact to the minute degree-based aspect with Mercury, which is my ascendant Lord okay and i have an extremely close relationship with my brother like we are just really really close we're really supportive of one another you know it's it's a really powerful um friendship right and that is really adequately described by that mars you know and we we have a big influence on one another because of the reception because of the closeness of the aspect and so on we we did used to fight a lot growing up you know it's mars <laughs>
0: but it always happens between all the brothers
1: <laughs> it it does yeah absolutely um for sure but uh you know and my brother is really martian he's uh he's scorpio lagna and he's got you know mars in the 10th house and blah 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 so you know um but in any case like that is just one example of how that can work and so The other other side of this, too, is that planets, okay, there's something called superior aspects and inferior aspects, and this is also very important in Hellenistic astrology. It's most important with the square, but it's still important with the trine and sextile, and that is basically that the if two planets are an aspect, the planet earlier in the signs, according to the regular order of the signs, right, is the one casting the superior aspect which is also called from the right
0: okay uh, the would other would you repeat that please
1: yeah the 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 planet that's earlier in the order of the signs is the one casting the superior aspect which is also called from the right it's casting it from the right because if you stand in the middle of say a circular chart and you looked at that planet you looked at those planets the one on your right that you could see would be casting the aspect ahead in the order of the signs. So case in point, my Mars, the Mars in my chart, I should say, is in Aquarius and it's aspecting um, Mercury, which is in Aries. And that Mars is making a superior sextal to Mercury because it's it's earlier in the natural order of the signs. Aquarius is the 11th sign, right? So it's going ahead to Aries. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, cool. So what that means is that Mars is gonna have a little bit more of a say in things, okay? And this becomes really important when you deal with the squares because the planet that is, that is earlier in the signs in a square aspect, so that means the planet that's in the 10th house from the other planet that's in the square, right? If I have a planet in Aries, aspecting a planet in Cancer, the planet in Aries, is considered to decimate or dominate the other planet, which means that it basically has the final say. But this doctrine gets slightly modified if the aspect is perfect, because if the aspect is within three degrees or near perfect, 13 degrees, if we're considering the moon, because the moon moves roughly 13 degrees a day, three degrees for everything else, then this, I forget what the technical term is. It's really not important, um, in my opinion. But basically, what happens is the planet in the in casting the inferior aspect. So let's say the planet in Cancer, or my or my Mercury in Aries to Mars in Aquarius. It's almost like that planet gets a little more oomph and gets to influence the planet behind it a little more. So there's a bit of a mitigation that occurs, and there's not this domination thing. It's not as clear cut. Does that make sense? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Uh,
0: okay, so uh, there is one thing that uh, I wanted to ask while you were talking. So, see, let's say uh, uh, Jupiter is um, forming an aspect with Mars. Like, let's say Mars is in Leo and Jupiter is in Sagittarius. Okay. Okay, or uh, let's put it this way. Uh, let's say. Uh, Mars is in uh, Sagittarius and Jupiter is in Aries. There is a mutual exchange. Yes. Okay, but apart from the mutual exchange, so does a planet gain something uh, due to the fact that, so let's say, uh, does Mars push Jupiter in some way because Jupiter is placed in Mars's sign, which is Aries? So is this a more favorable aspect than usual train or something? Yeah. Like? That yeah, a- that
1: would be that would be extremely favorable because there's a mutual reception or Parivartma yoga as it's called in.
0: Okay, 30. let's say, let's say Saturn is placed in Aries instead of Jupiter. Okay. <laughs> so how, how how does how does um,
1: it- yeah. so that's that's actually depending on what houses they're in will obviously modify things, but uh, that's not a horrible situation because you have Mars making a gentle aspect to Saturn and receiving Saturn and Mars because Mars is the Lord of Aries. So anytime you have the Lord aspecting any sign and any planets in that sign, you have reception and you have a certain level of mitigation. You know, if Mars is in really good condition, like, uh, you know, let's just put Saturn in the third in Aries. And so Mars is going to be in the 11th, right? And let's say, um, I don't know, let's say... Let's just say Mars is, um, let's just say he's in good condition. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's like a night chart and, and, and Mars is, um, Oriental, which means he'll rise over the horizon before the sun. Um, and let's say he's in, he's in Sagittarius, but let's say he's in his own bound bounds are, are very important in Hellenistic. Um, you know that that could be a situation where Mars is going to actually be really able to help out Saturn, and Saturn's in a slightly difficult house anyway—the third house, because just like in Jotish and Hellenistic, the third is considered to be slightly, slightly challenging, slightly cruel. Um, then that's um that's a pretty decent situation, you know. Um. Mars is also in the 11th house. So the 11th house is the house of the uh, like the good spirit, the good guiding spirits and that help you in your life. And it, you know, the 11th also deals with aid. Um, it deals with friendship. So, you know, maybe it's like you've got some kind of help from your friends or your friends help your siblings or something. Or maybe your sibling who is afflicted by Saturn gets religion. Or get some like intense, he's intensely intellectual because it's in the ninth from the third, and you know, so on and so forth. There's like so many ways to interpret it depending on the context. And, okay, um,
0: Okay, that was something that I really wanted to know because now I, I'm trying to put so much of uh, Western concepts into my analysis, which, which is a cool, which is probably a very good value addition. So, uh, where did you want to go next?
1: Well, I think I think now would be a, a good time to present um this theory that my friend uh Rok and I sort of stumbled upon. Um and my friend uh Rok, he's from Slovenia. I don't think he has a website yet, but I do wanna give him uh the credit where credit's due. Um and his last name is uh let's see, it's uh Koritnik, which I'm probably mispronouncing, so um <laughs> If you know rock if you're watching this, I, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name. But anyway, so we, we were just having an email chat one day about the aspects and how we use them because he also is is very into like combining Hellenistic with Jotish or kind of using them side by side. And we were talking and I was like, well, you know, Yavanajataka has the same aspects that Parashara gives. The only difference is Yavanajataka doesn't say that Mars, Jupiter and Saturn have their special aspects. And then he pointed out this really interesting thing that looks kind of like a typo, a couple of, (laughs) or something, or it's like a scribal, it could be a scribal error. And so this is, um, this is a kind of an out there theory. uh, And, you know, you can, you can take it or leave it. The rest of the Indian astrologers, which I have great respect for, can take it or leave it, whoever listens to this, but Basically, in verse sixty-four and sixty-five of the first chapter of the Yavanajataka, Yav- the the translation reads um, that we're using. We we actually have two different translations, but I'll just read one. So sixty-four says, "Accepting the second, sixth, eleventh, and twelfth signs from that in which it is a planet always aspects the rest, the rest of the signs." Their aspect is good when it is in good signs. Okay, so that's 64. So that's rather odd because that's very close to the Hellenistic doctrine, except it's 11th instead of 8th. Yeah. So we kind of do wonder about that uh, if it should should say 8th and perhaps there was some sort of scribal error because the Yavanajataka we have is not the original Yavanajataka. It's a. It's yeah, a, um,
0: this, this is the problem with translated texts because we might end up having. Some uh, mistakes, or something. Right.
1: So, yeah. But, but it's not. It's not the translation. It's. It's the actual edition in Sanskrit that we have is not necessarily the original edition in Sanskrit of the yeah. Avinajataka.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Because
1: yeah. that's that's what the author of the Avinajataka says. He says this is the Yavanajataka of this other guy, and I'm basically rewriting it or or putting it down again. Okay. And expanding it. So then verse 65 says the influence of the aspect is complete in opposition, less by a fourth in the two squares. But then it says the fourth and eighth places. So less by a fourth in the two squares, the fourth and eighth places, a half in the two trines and a fourth in the third and tenth signs, which means the backwards square that Saturn, you know, is said to make. Here's the thing, though. Less by a fourth in the two squares, that should be the fourth and the tenth house, not the fourth and the eighth house. The eighth house is not a square. So my friend Roch and I decided that we think that this could be either A, a scribal error, or B, a very odd divergence from the original Hellenistic aspect doctrine. And that, in fact, there was never meant to be any sort of eighth house aspect like Mars has, that Mars aspects the eighth from itself. Because if this were true, both aspect doctrines would be the same, except that the Jyotish aspect doctrine would be a modification in that they're say, the Jotish the tradition is saying that conjunction opposition is 100% um square uh superior square is 75% inferior square is thir- 25% trines are 50% and so on as a way to basically and then you know and then that's modified later on um and we I don't know where it first appears but I know it from Parashara where he says you know Saturn Jupiter and Mars have these special aspects that they make that are, there are exceptions to the rule, which makes a lot of sense. It makes perfect sense from a Hellenistic perspective, except for Mars's eighth aspect. So, my theory is that the Jotish approach is to basically allow uh, allow the practitioner to zero in on the most on the most powerful connections at a glance. But that when we take things like reception and dignity. And superior and inferior aspects, like my Mars superior sextal to Mercury, right, from a fixed sign, which makes it more powerful, things like that. Then we get instances where planets are making a powerful 100% aspect, even though normally they wouldn't be, right? So it's almost like the Yavanajataka and the Jyotish tradition is giving you kind of just a simple overview of this is is the strengths. But then when you get into fine tuning the analysis on a Hellenistic level, you fine tune it and you find connections that you wouldn't normally find. And actually it's no different from the Jyotish tradition really because in the Jyotish tradition, you're gonna find those connections anyway by using the sub charts, right? You're gonna look at the chart and you're gonna be like, oh, Saturn is um, only aspecting these two planets. But then you might find, oh, but in the Navamsha, Saturn is sitting with this other planet. Or in the Saptamsha, he's aspecting this other planet. And so on and so forth, right? Yeah. So the, the aspect doctrines of both traditions can really come together very easily and very powerfully. But they are general and then they get specific when you go into depth with all the fine-tuning techniques okay cool so yeah this so the next is uh, anticia
0: or you want to like do it in the next thing on a more comprehensive
1: yeah that that would probably be a good idea cuz uh makes a lot of people scratch their heads in deep confusion <laughs> but it is a very simple concept and it and it works beautifully in practice Um, Not only in my experience, but in many other astrologers' experience. And um, it mitigates some things that I talked about. Like, it can mitigate um, a two twelve relationship, right? Where those two houses are supposed to be dark to one another. Shadow. Right. But if two planets are in Antitia, like Aries and Pisces form Antitia with each other, it mitigates that to a certain degree. It can even totally mitigate it, depending on the context. So... Um, it's like another one of those things where it's like, once you think you understand it, you get hit with Antitia and you're just sort of like facepalm, like, Oh my God, how the heck is this? Yeah, I,
0: I, I was, uh, it's funny. Again, it's, there, there's a lot of coincidence. I was reading Anticia last night and, uh, uh yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I'm really excited to talk about Antitia on a separate session because I think, cool. um, yeah. So, final thoughts?
1: My final thoughts would be um, that there was definitely a lot of stuff I said that maybe I could have left out or that may make things a little overwhelming. But when you go look at the aspects for yourself, the important things to remember are think about it in terms of geometry and the the house overlay of like, Um, The sextals are like the third and the eleventh house. The trines are like the fifth and the ninth house Think about it like that think about the elemental interplay the harmony or disharmony that's ensuing and then also Remember that, you know, if you especially if you're new to this stuff remember that um, the planets fundamental nature is never ever changed by aspects or by dignity, it's only modified in terms of how it manifests. So that's where Mars, even in a sexual aspect is still going to give a Martian influence, but it's going to give less of an intense influence than if it was in a square opposition or conjunction and so on for all the other planets. So I think that's really important because it's really easy to get lost in like, oh, well, these are, oh, but these are two malefics and they're in trine, so that's good. And it's like, no, not necessarily. And just to give a quick example, uh, a good friend of mine uh, kind of tragically passed away from lung cancer. And one of the things that showed that in her chart, in my opinion, was uh, she had Sun, Mars in Taurus in the eighth house, trying to retrograde Saturn in Virgo in the 12th house. So you might think, oh, that's a nice aspect. Well, no, no, it's not because it really contributed to her a lot of things in her life that were very difficult because it was this ease of flow. You know, if you're getting an avalanche, it's the avalanche is going to have no problem at a certain point, yeah. just sort of crushing you beneath its its uh, its awesomeness. So um so, you know, everything in its proper place, everything in its proper context, there is not a simple formula for good, bad, strong, or weak. You have to dig into the chart and really get, um, you have to get all the little details to really know how an aspect between two planets is going to behave. Um, so that's, that's the main thing. Don't, don't overthink the power of the aspects. They're really, in a sense, the least important part of astrology. Um I know that sounds weird but they the the planets are so much more important in terms of their essential nature right and the aspects just link them together in a certain way So um So those would be my final thoughts and then as an addendum we didn't really get to talk about how the aspects function when it comes to the planets uh, behaving as house lords which does change things slightly, but um, you know, maybe we can get to that some other time, I think. Uh, yeah, in
0: the next episode we'll, we'll try to cover up all those that we left for the next episode.
1: Yeah, sure, okay.
0: <laughs> okay, and uh, as you said, uh, again, th- there is a lot of coincidence with this episode because you said, uh, like the planetary traits, are they always remain the same so I was talking to Fernando Raúl uh, like about yeah. two, or, two or three hours back, and uh, we were talking the same thing. And B.B. Uh, Raman once said, "Planets never uh, shed their natural characteristics and traits. Mars exactly. remains Mars, and Saturn remains Saturn. Jupiter remains Jupiter." And thanks awesome. for joining Lars. And, uh, Thank you. Bye bye. Until we see you next time. Thank you.